Well, hi everyone, and welcome back to Crosswires. It's James here, and we are talking about something very important this week. I hope you're all got your hard drives ready, you've got your backup plans in place, because we're going to be talking backup and cloud storage. Now, I'm joined by my fantastic co-host, who who's had her fair share of backup stories, and, and me yelling at her for not backing up properly at the moment. Jay, how are you feeling? Are you feeling shamed enough yet? Yes, and I won't tell you that I lost a hard drive 10 years ago because I didn't back it up. I will say, for the record, I did offer to give Jay my old time capsule with a four terabyte drive. The one, actually, we you saw in the video uh, a couple of months ago, but we upgraded and Jay's like, no, it's okay. And do you know why? Because she wanted to take more souvenirs back and didn't want the weight in the suitcase. <laughs> I got all this candy, all this candy that it's not for me, it's for my family, but I got all this candy that I promise I've not been eaten. Do you, do you mean chocolate, Jay? Or chocolate, yes, yes. There you go. Get the get the nomenclature correct. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the gentleman correcting Jay's uh, atrocious use of the word candy to describe finest English chocolate is our guest this week. <laughs> Sorry, I completely lost. Just, just, just completely corpse. It's fine. Oh, yeah. So it, we have Pat with us. And Pat, you are the, now let me get this right, the Chief Technology Evangelist. Yeah, close. Chief Technical Evangelist. Oh, so I do apologize. But it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, call me what you like, just don't call me late for dinner. Surely you can't be serious. <laughs> don't call he me is. Shirley. Oh, good, 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 yes! Oh. I like you already. <laughs> <laughs> So before we get into the, and fair warning, folks, Pat has told me that he can sit here and talk for hours about this stuff. So this might be a long episode, but it's such an important thing uh, that, you know, we might run over our hour, but you know what? We reserve that for really good episodes. So let's kick into game. But before we do that, Pat, do you want to tell people a little bit about yourself? Maybe a little bit about your journey to, uh, to Bat Blaze? Of course. Yeah. So as you can probably tell, I am from the, eastern side of the Atlantic. I uh, grew up in the lovely concrete city of Coventry, right in the middle of England. And I, you know, uh, studied computer science, went straight into a software development job. And I basically, that's what I did for about 10 years for the, the course of the 90s. I coded in C and C++ and then kind of jumped across to Java uh, when that came out at the end of the 90s. And um, I always tell people I served a four-year sentence in product management <laughs> because it was a job that just wasn't for me. You know, nobody reports to you and you have to persuade them all to do their job and follow up on the commitments they've made. And it's a lot of, you know, eye-crossing and T-dotting. And I, you know, I was glad of the experience, but I returned to engineering. And by this time, I was at uh, Sun Microsystems. Uh, God rest its soul. And I was working on single sign-on technology, which, of course, everybody's familiar now, uh, you know, with now with, you know, logging in with your Google account to access resources somewhere else. And Okta, you know, it seems like almost every workplace uses Okta for single sign-on. But this was like around 2004, 2005. And Sun was open sourcing its single sign-on technology in a project called OpenSSO. And the engineering director pointed at me, uh, just like Jay did there, and said, uh, Pat, you're good at talking to people. You be the community guy. 
because there really wasn't a job title for right. what I was expected to do. So my job was to figure out this open source stuff because we had a proprietary product and an engineering team who that had been their, you know, their mode of operation for the past few years. And then kind of bring that into the engineering team and act as a bridge between our community of users and partners and so on. And that, uh, you know, the product and engineering teams. And that was just incredible fun. You know, I built this community from the ground up over, you know, the next four or five years. In the last year I was there, which was like the last year of Sun's independent existence, we had a, a community day in New York City. And, um, you know, one of the great things there was, you know, we had business customers, you know, paying us money like they always had for single sign-on uh, solutions. Um, we had partners who really appreciated being able to see inside the product and diagnose issues. And then we had open source users who were deploying, you know, self-supporting, deploying the product, active in the community, asking questions. And there was a little bit of uh, unspoken quid pro quo there because they would often be great advocates for the technology and uh, references. So we had one team based out of Duke U University called Cancer and Leukemia Group B, and they brought together researchers from all over the U.S., uh, obviously working on cancer and leukemia. And it was a classic federation uh, use case. So each of these researchers had their login to their home university, but they needed to access this set of shared resources. And academic institutions are uh, time rich and cash poor. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got uh, TAs and graduate students lying around that can be put to work. So, yeah, they were a, they were a customer. And, um, you know, I, I told that that story many times on stage. And anyway, back to New York, uh, NYU was another uh, open source user. So uh, I organized this day long event. It was an unconference. So, you know, the, the plan was come with a session in mind if you want to speak and we'll assemble the agenda, uh, you know, first thing at the first order of business. And NYU gave us this marvelous room. It was on about the sixth floor in Greenwich Village with floor to ceiling windows that overlooked New York. It oh, was, wow. And they gave it for us for their internal charging rate of something like 200 bucks for the day. Anyway, so that was actually St. Patrick's Day 2009. So I, I got to take out some of the folks uh, on the company credit card on St. Patrick's Day in New York, which was quite enjoyable. But, you know, unfortunately, soon after that, the um, Oracle acquisition of Sun was announced and the fund stopped and... I really didn't want to become an Oracle employee. They, you know, they were quite open about their disdain for the open source side of Sun. And I ended up at Salesforce as a developer evangelist. So I actually had the official title then and learned so much. I was there like 2010 to 2016. I was in the, the team I was in, developer relations, set up the uh, developer zone at Dreamforce. Dreamforce, you know, I think by the time I left, it was 100,000 attendees. It had outgrown the big conference center in San Francisco, the Moscone Conference Center, mm -hmm. yeah. and had like events in nearby hotels. And the uh, the developer zone was a floor of Moscone West. 
Uh, and it was like a conference within a conference. You could have 10 or 15,000 developers show up and, and not set foot into the wider, you know, optimize your sales automation lead gathering process sessions. They were there for using the REST API. Yeah. And so, uh, that was, that was incredible fun. And I went on to a, a startup in data engineering called Streamsets and they were acquired earlier this year by Software AG. I wasn't still there when that happened, but that was a very nice event for me. Uh, spent a little time at Citrix and then landed at Backblaze at the beginning of this year. So I've, I've been around this cycle of building technical communities, working with technical communities in several different technology domains, but it's always the same. It's always a case of educating develop. You can't market to, uh, developers and admins and like, you know, technical professionals. The, uh, what's the, what's the language guideline on this? Uh, are we, are we at like PG 13 or PG 13? Uh, I mean, you know, a, with a little bit of leeway. Okay. Yeah. So, so, you know, technical professionals have, uh, highly developed bullshit detectors. So, you know, you, you cannot market to these people. So, you know, what, what I do is I educate them and, uh, you know, I bring value when I'm writing a blog post or presenting a conference session. Even if you're not interested in anything that like my employer is doing, you're going to learn useful things. And, and that's really it. And then just building the community, connecting people, uh, so that they can share that, uh, experience with each other. Absolutely. And, you know, f from personal experience working, you know, across a range of roles, but also using a range of products, you know, we've said it many times on this show that the community that Squadcast have built of podcasters is fantastic. And not, you know, we have that, hey, there's something going on with the system. Well, obviously we're meant to file a support ticket, but we also have, uh, you know, the tech Slack channel in there where we can, you know, talk a little bit. And, you know, I've seen wonderful events put on by, you know, by developer teams and by developer relations to really excite. I think it's a sign of a good product when they don't hide behind the code and they're willing, yep, this is what we're doing. I mean, a great example uh, for Backblaze, one of the things that's always always impressed me about Backblaze is how transparent Backblaze are on their drive stats. Yeah. That's a huge sign of trust in their community and openness. Uh, I think your Q3s just came out, came out, didn't me, if I remember correctly? Yeah, Q3 Backblaze drive sets came out yesterday. It's uh, uh, probably still a top item on the blog. And I'm actually uh, preparing a follow-up uh, blog post on that, explaining how we're using some like data lake techniques with Backblaze, uh, our cloud object storage Backblaze B2, and explaining how uh, you can play along at home. You know, you we're publishing as well as publishing a zipped CSV of drive metrics, uh, we're publishing it in a data format that makes it much more amenable to just running SQL queries against it. But I guess we can di dive uh, deeper into that later on where we're talking about cloud object storage. But yeah, we are almost radically transparent. You know, when we were founded, I guess the origin myth, but it's actually true, is that uh, one of our founders' friends, their uh, laptop hard drive died and she said uh, brian you've got to help me get my data back what do i do and he said oh yeah yeah i can help you with that where's your backup and she was like i don't need a lecture i just need help 
And, you know, Brian Wilson, one of our co-founders, it became very apparent that, you know, he was a techie. Uh, he had external USB drives and like looked after himself, uh, you know, took one of them to work for an offsite backup. But most civilians are, are, are not that savvy and they just need something that works. And so this seed was planted, I guess, in about 2007 or so when the company, uh, I think the company was founded. Yeah. April 2007. So I guess at the end of 2006, early 2007, he started thinking about how can I create a backup service for ordinary people? And there were options around at that time, but they were pretty expensive or, or pretty cumbersome. And they, they, you know, he got together with uh, a few of his like longtime colleagues from like, uh, you know, that he'd been, been around the loop with at different companies. And they actually stood back and looked at it from the uh, user point of view and said, okay, how is this going to work? You know, is, is it going to be based around plugging drives in? Um, you know, they zeroed in on cloud storage pretty early on. And this was, this was like a year after Amazon had launched, um, S3. So this was pretty early on in, in the, in the days of the cloud. And then they said, okay, well, how are we going to package this? And they very quickly realized they did a lot of kind of focus groups with friends and so on. M- most, Again, I'll use the term civilians. Aren't really sure the difference between a megabyte and a gigabyte and absolutely don't know. I mean, if they know the capacity of the hard drives, they've got no idea how much data is on it. Yeah. And so they conceived of this thing not as I'm going to pay you for so many bytes each month, but I'm going to pay for a service that will give me peace of mind. And they talked to people and said, okay, how do we price this? And at one end of the curve, there were people who said, well, it's on the internet. It should be free. And then on the other end, there were people who say, my data is incredibly valuable. I'd pay 50 bucks a month for that. But there was a huge kind of, you know, it's like a, a bell curve. There was a huge peak in the middle. People said, yeah, $5 a month. I'd be all in. Mm. And, and that's really interesting because they started with the pricing. You know, that was a, a key. Part, they started with the idea that one, it has to be easy. And two, it has to be accessible for ordinary people in terms of the price. And they looked at S3 because that was the shiny new thing and said, there is no way we can do this on S3. It's like way too expensive. And, uh, so they basically said, okay, what's the cheapest way we can put storage on the internet and custom designed what they called a storage pod, which is essentially I think originally it was 45 hard drives in like a, in a box with a motherboard and two, uh, power supply units. And then, so that was the base and that would run Linux, uh, very simple stuff. Linux, nothing fancy, no SCSI or NFS or anything. Uh, Tomcat, I think. And then basically wrote layers of software to build, you know, you've got your basic unit is this storage pod, which, you know, uh, whatever it was, four times 45. So that's about 180 terabytes at the beginning. And you rack those up and you write software to build them together to store data in a, you know, in a redundant way. And so going back to the, I I told you I could speak all day on this. Going back to your original question about openness, they shared the design 
for that hardware. Mm. And people did actually, I think they originally would kind of sell you uh, the box as well, the, the bright gloss red enclosure. And uh, basically they published the bill of materials to say, you want one of these? Go for it. Like, here's the shopping list. And people did build them and, uh, you know, Backblaze, I think, sold a couple of them. You know, they weren't in the business of selling these things, but they, they, you know, had people who were sufficiently motivated to uh, pay them enough money to make it worthwhile to do a couple of, a few one-offs. But basically, they, they, you know, this was in the, in the service of being able to back up people's data for $5 a month. And yeah, the other thing they said was, we'll make it unlimited. Because again, nobody wants a bill that's going up and down every month. Nobody knows, you know, they said, we'll back up the data, not the OS and apps, because you get a replacement, even the replacement hard hard drive often comes with, you know, often came with Windows, but unlimited data. And uh, so it's easy. So five bucks a month, and then just forget about it. It's seven now, you know, 15 years of inflation. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and, and we've always been, you know, you can go back through the blog, pretty much every layer of software, you know, the way that we combine 20 drives to get the, uh, data redundancy and the way, you know, we shard the data. We've published all of that because like the big guys, the hyperscalers, Amazon, uh, AWS, Microsoft Azure, Google Cloud, they can just say, Hey, we're really smart. This is a service. Don't worry about what's behind the the curtain. And we've taken the approach of, well, we're kind of like scrappy upstarts. So we're going to share exactly how we've done this so that you have confidence that we actually know what we're doing. And drive stats that came out of that, you know, um, nine years ago, uh, you know, we were collecting metrics on our drive fleet every day. And uh, we decided, well, uh, we can publish this. You know, it's not our secret source. It's it's helpful for the industry. And we started this thing called DriveStats. So, you know, at DriveStats, every day we collect a record of data for every single hard drive. So now there's 230,000 hard drives with about wow. 2.6 exabytes of raw storage across our uh, data centers. So every day there's a record with the date, serial number, drive model number, uh, all the smart attributes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the low-level kind of um, indicators of like how many bad sectors and everything, and then crucially whether the drive was failed and taken out of service on that day. And yeah, I, so drive stats basically every quarter we just zip up. Uh, there's a CSV file per day with you know currently two hundred thirty thousand lines in it, and we zip those together and put them on the web and uh, my colleague Andy Klein writes it up in a blog post and does a bit of analysis on you know what we're seeing what the annual failure rates are of different drives and there's a lot of insight there like right now you know he's written uh, yesterday about how you know our four terabyte drives are, are nearing the end of the life and we're seeing like increased uh, AFRs annual failure rates there mm-hmm. and uh, we've done a bit about so we use, still use spinning drives for data, but we use uh, SSDs, uh, solid-state drives for uh, boot drives. Uh, we're starting to get enough data there to, to actually do some analysis of SSDs versus uh, HDDs. And it turns out they are uh, really reliable. You know, they are more reliable than spinning rust. But uh, right now, they uh, cost 
uh, per byte, you know, isn't there for us to to start using them for data. It's it's yeah. I mean, SSDs. You know, you see. I would. I don't want to say crazy, but very outlandish projects from the likes of uh, Linus uh, Media Group, Linus Tech Tips. Of he's our entire SSD based, you know, storage server. You know, he's only forty five drives yep. enclosure. Oh yeah, wonderful. Like Rolls Royce. Oh yeah, wonderful if you can afford. One. Oh absolutely, but it's not cost effective for that amount of data. No, and you know, spinning rust. Look, I've got a NAS here, as many of you our listeners know. That is spinning Rust with, as Pat said, an SSD boot drive. And down the line, as I start to expand that, I'll put SSD caches into that. I'll tell you that that's that's exactly the direction we're going as well. You know, you 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 use those resources at the right places in the in the in the solution. And you know, and my I've got this. I've got a Synology four drive NAS, and one of the things Backblaze does is they have this perks program where you get so much money to spend on anything that's going to make your, you know, working life better. Nice. And so I bought a four-drive Synology and and could afford to put in the two sticks of SSD storage cache, and it's very nice. Mm. And I back it up to Backblaze B2. There you go. I think you've hit the nail on my head here, how important backups are, because it's not a case of if you're going to lose data, Mm -hmm. it's when you're going to lose data. These spinning drives they will eventually fail, as we know from from your drives. Even SSDs. Even SSDs fails. And the last thing that you want as a individual, it doesn't matter your, your, you know, if you're a civilian or if you are a developer or if you are a CTO or, you know, your data is valuable. And the reality is, unless it's properly backed up, you are really running the risk of losing that data forever. Yes. I've lost data in the past because I didn't back up properly. I will admit that. Mm. I, now I have. I'm going to be honest. The the whole is it the three two one backup strategy that people often talk about. The three different right, hang on, three different backups in two different locations. No, that's not right. For one set of data, something like yeah, that. Yeah. I, I I I never remember it either. Uh, yeah, and yeah, you're you're right. That a lot of people are very vulnerable to, and it's not just like mechanical or electrical failure. You know, accidents, theft, you know, all of that stuff. Um, you know, with SSDs, probably more vulnerable to spilling a cup of, co- cup of coffee over your laptop keyboard yep. than, a, than a hard drive. And, you know, you, you just leave it on the train, you know, leave your backpack pack in the in the pub at the end of the night. So, yeah, and, and you know, my, my I've got a couple of anecdotes. One is, like, I, I completely messed up my... Raid configuration with my music on years ago, and I still have. I'll be playing a track, and there's like a second of another track where something went. You know, I recovered most of the data very laboriously, and some of the tracks were still corrupted. So I just put up with it. But when I when I joined Backblaze, so my kids have like backed up their Macs to Time Machine since time immemorial. But like they're getting older. Like my um, uh, old, my son is now at. Uh, UC Santa Cruz. So he studied the first year of the pandemic at home and then went on campus. And so I joined Backblaze at exactly the time when it's like, oh, like he can't back up his Mac to Time Machine anymore. And so I, I've actually got a, like turned on the groups feature so that I can like manage my two kids laptop backups. And it was my daughter, like I, I put, uh, Backblaze on her laptop and literally 
two weeks later, uh, it just would not even boot. And with Macs, they're lovely machines, but it can be difficult to kind of get in there and diagnose things. And it was at the age where it's like, okay, this is just, this is just dead now. And it, it, you know, I couldn't even, it didn't even get to the bong. So, you know, I, as luck would have it, I was planning to buy a new laptop anyway. And we did the order your data on the drive. So yeah, so, you know, for restoring, um, so the backblaze, you know, the way backblaze works is you download the application, install it. And by default, like I say, it backs up all your data. There's an exclusion list. So, you know, it'll, it'll exclude things like, uh, you know, if we want to get super techie, virtual machine images, stuff like that, that often, often you don't want to be spending time uploading those, but you can like remove them from the exclusion list. But basically you, you run this thing and it just sits there and, it, you know, often it takes a couple of days oh, yeah. to gradually work its through way through what data you have. And then from that point on, it just sits there quietly watching for changes and every time you save a new version of file or whatever it sends it up up the wire so we end up with you know a copy of you know a synchronized up-to-date copy of what you have and you can password protect it so we can't read it or anything and then if the worst comes to the worst and you need to restore you either go to the website and you know start downloading and that just the reality of how much data we have these days can take a long time, mm. especially if you don't have a super fast broadband connection. Uh, but the alternative that a lot of people take is that we will copy your data onto uh, a drive and mail it to you, or I, I guess ship it to you is probably more accurate. Uh, and, and you have 30 days then. if you So you pay, I think, a couple of hundred bucks deposit effectively. If you return the drive within that time, we put that back on your card. But, they, but, you know, a lot of people just keep it because it's handy to have a USB drive. So I did exactly that, ordered the drive, said to my daughter, okay, you're like, you've got your new laptop, here's your data, get copying, uh, get it done in the next four weeks, and um, uh, I can send it back for the, for the money back because guess what? I don't get any perks being an employee. I don't get a free 8-terabyte external drive. Guess what? That 8-terabyte external drive is still sitting in my daughter's bedroom. Ah. So there you go. We're uh, and we don't actually even make any money on those. Uh, you know, it's that's it's like it's part of the service. We have to charge the deposit um, and we refund it when you send it back. So makes sense. And some people are happy to just not to pay that deposit for an eight terabyte drive. I can I can see that being quite quite handy. Yeah, I mean, like maybe maybe they're like, okay, I I you know I had two locations i'd like my laptop and my cloud backup in backblaze maybe i want or maybe i want to keep that eight terabyte drive and keep a local backup yeah. so that i can get it super fast and keep that off-site backup uh, up in the cloud and one thing just so that we are 100 percent clear i don't think any any of us are dismissing the value of on-site backups through tools like time machine no absolutely not no it's yeah it's like defense in depth right on-site backups super fast to restore because you can be on like gigabit or even uh, like 10 gig ethernet or you know across uh USB-C. but if if you have a fire or a flood or another catastrophe you know you really need that off-site backup absolutely now you know as, as you mentioned it Backblaze is seven pounds a month. Now that's per device, isn't it? If I remember correctly, that's it is correct. Yeah, unlimited data per device. 
And we do have users who, and we're very open, right? Our, our break even is about 1.4 terabytes. That's how open we are. Our break even is 1.4 terabytes, I think, these days. And there's a power curve. And we've actually published the power curve. Our, like Brian Wilson, who's now one of our founders, who's now our CTO, is a stalwart on the Backblaze Reddit channel and has posted the power curve of the whales who have maybe tens, perhaps even hundreds of terabytes. And then you have like the break-even point, and then the vast majority of customers have less than a terabyte. And it all works out. And actually, those whales act as canaries in the coal mine because if everything's working fine for those folks, it's going to work fine for my mum. Absolutely. Go on, Jay. I think you've got a question. I'm No, I'm not. Uh, well... Kind of a question. I'm one of those who, for a little while, because of video editing, I actually was one of the ones who had multiple terabytes up there. Yep. Now, a cool feature you added, and it helped me a lot, was I could actually offload some of the, because I, mean, I had a bunch of external hard drives. I could offload those to B2. You added that, and that is phenomenal. That's nice. Yeah. I could leave that somewhere, and I'm paying you for all that data, but I'm, I'm leaving it somewhere, and then it's, I don't have to worry about it, because I did run into an issue years ago. This is like back in the early days of decoding where my .b2 file or whatever got corrupted and I did lose a hard drive, but it was because I had, I had way, way too many files. <laughs> right. You were, you were, yeah, you were the, the you know, yeah, yeah. The, the canary died that day. <laughs> yeah. But I, I have to say I have restored so many times using the, both the download and, and the drives. And it is, it was so helpful. I mean, I, I literally had one day my, I, I got to work. My laptop was, was dead and I was able to, to, to get my hard drive replaced, had I had my had my my hard drive to me within like a couple of days, if, if if that, and it was it was incredible. So I'm yeah, it was nice having the offset backup. And just to explain a little bit more about what what Jay just said, so the the way the backup works is so if you delete a bunch of data, we hold on to it by default for thirty days, and then it kind of ages out, and uh, you know it's it's not there anymore. You know, we can't keep everything you've ever done forever. Well, we can, but you have to pay for it. We can't do that for $7 slash pounds a month for everyone. So there's a couple of like, you know, bells and whistles there. One is called extended version history. And you can pay and say, okay, I want, uh, I can't remember what it is now. I think it's uh, like, uh, you can pay more and get and say, okay, keep everything for a year. Or I, I can't remember, it might be six months or a year. So here's where... Uh, on the, uh, on the backup side is going to like punch me in the ribs or something. Cause I can't remember the details of extended version history, but uh, anyway, you can pay more money and we'll keep it longer. And then the other thing, but it still has to, you know, basically it's a replica of your drive, but you know, it's, as Jay was kind of implying there, sometimes you want to keep stuff, but you don't actually want to keep it around on your drive as well as in backblaze. So what we let you do is move it off into our other storage product, which is called Backblaze B2 Cloud Object Storage, where that's designed as a, you know, a more flexible data storage location where you can say, okay, I'm going to move all this old work over into B2. Mm-hmm. And you, rather than being like, you know, a fixed price unlimited storage, it's basically $5 per terabyte per month. Which is really good pricing. Yeah. Yeah, especially compared to things like S3. But then you you have that flexibility to say, okay, this is like my work from five years ago. I want to keep it around. I don't need it on my laptop. But the really nice thing about when it goes into B2 is that it's still accessible in milliseconds uh, and, and 
like getting uh, super geeky here. B2, Backblaze B2, has an Amazon S3 compatible API. And the net of that is that any tools and just about every data tool works with Amazon S3, they will by and large work with B2. You just change the endpoint URL to point to us, put in your, you know, put in a, a, an application key and your bucket name, and you can access that data. So there's tools like, um, there's many tools. I use one called Cyberduck because you can put your B2 credentials in there and then it gives you like a nice tree view of your files and you can drag files in and out and it, and it just works. And it is, you know, it's almost, I say almost because like things get tricky at the boundaries. It's almost like just having an extension of your storage on your laptop. But there are reasons that you shouldn't think of it like that. The, the, the semantics of how I, I, I can go so deep on this. It's, it's, it's annoying. <laughs> the semantics of local storage and cloud storage are very, very different. And if you try to imagine, oh, I can just point word at this, like, you know, I can, I can make this uh, object store into like a file system and point word at it and save files. You, you're not going to have a great experience. You've got to really treat it as um, an archive in the sky where I, I can like drag stuff in and work on it and then drag it back. One of the things I was going to say, you know, other tools, you know, because we want to be somewhat impartial. I love Cyberduck, mm. but other tools exist for the same purpose. Absolutely, I was going to say Forklift. I think, correct me if I'm wrong. Forklift. I need to double check this. I think Forklift can actually almost can mount any of the storage based support as a mm-hmm. drive like thing in macOS. Now, I think all of us here are macOS users. Tools do exist for Windows. Um, I do wish Windows had some better. But one of my gripes about Windows, not to get into this too much, Windows backup is no local backup is nowhere near as simple to set up and use as Time Machine. That's been my experience. Well, you know, that's that's the trade off of the vertical integration that Apple have. You know, controlling every layer of the stack makes for a you know, a, a wonderful user experience, but it just kind of... It's a lock it, It's a, it's a walled garden, yeah. but it's a really nice place to live. Absolutely. Now, let's talk a little bit about... So, we talked about backup. So, as you said, with traditional Backblaze backup, the idea is, yeah, you've got a 30-day window, but it is taking a snapshot of your drive at a point where that snapshot is taken. So, it's not... So if you delete a file, mm-hmm. it's going to stay in the previous snapshots for 30 days or if you pay for extended versioning for about a year, six months to a year, we will put a link to the extended versioning stuff into the show notes so people can find it. I will search with it with my favorite search engine as as we talk and, and figure it out because, uh, yeah, sorry, go no, on. No, it's all good. So that's great. But when we look at things like, and I'm going to use examples like Dropbox, iCloud, OneDrive, where they are mm. designed to be your file system, you know, Apple and Microsoft both push you very heavily into putting your documents folder into their cloud storage. Which I did. Yeah, I've done that. Oh, absolutely. It's a different, it's a different tool for a different purpose, I would say. So, yeah, the, and, and this comes up all the time. You know, people say, oh, I want to use B2 like uh, like Dropbox. It's like, eh, it's kind of like you want to use a screwdriver like a chisel. The thing about those services, what I was going to come to is people say, oh, I've got my data backed up to OneDrive or backed up to iCloud or backed up to Dropbox. Mm. No, 
you have your data synced to those services because mm-hmm. the minute you delete a file, mm. with well, there are maybe a little bit of latency. Yeah, a little bit of latency, and that some services like Dropbox I know has like recovery options, but they themselves, all three of our services, well, we are not a backup service. Mm. But you delete that, that data's probably gone very quickly. It's like RAID. RAID is not backup. Absolutely not. RAID is RAID is RAID is redundancy, hence redundant. You know, even ZFS, you know, my But when you yeah, when you when you delete a file, you delete it from the you delete the redundant Absolutely. copies of that file. Or if a file gets corrupted, or if malware uh overwrites encrypts files. That you that you're you are SOL with yeah, with um those kinds of systems, because it's a different tool for a different job. Absolutely. And RAID and ZFS, you know, however, however you're doing that, redundancy is about the physical redundancy, not necessarily the data redundancy. Because as, as Pat said, yeah, if you delete stuff. Mm. Oh, like, so, so like very quickly, extended version of history. Okay. So 30 days is included in standard backup. Uh, so you get a year. Uh, we'll save it for a year for an additional uh, two bucks, and I'm guessing two pounds a month. So that's like Ooh. nine instead so that takes of seven. You to nine, okay. So yeah, so you can restore old versions or deleted files that are up to a year old, and then you can get forever. Oh, for an additional two on top of that, plus half a cent per gigabyte per month for files older than a year. That's not bad at all. So you have to do some math there, but. Uh, yeah, so we will keep it forever as long as you keep paying us. What's that? Uh, five dollars. Yeah, that's the same as B two storage. Five dollars per terabytes. Per so month. I'm guessing it probably is use because obviously it's your system. That's It'll precisely be- what it does. Yeah, yeah. It basically it ends up. Well, in honesty, there's no difference at, at a certain level between like uh, backup and B two, in that it's all in the same storage platform that we've built. And there can be like backup files and B2 objects side by side on the same disk. The difference is the, the speed of access. Just the access mechanism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I would just say, folks, that's so if we talk about keeping stuff deleted files for a year, that is $9 slash pounds, depending on how the pounds doing right now. Your data's worth at least that much, folks. Think about that just really quickly. In terms, I always like to compare things to the things that we, you know, we treat ourselves to. Well, that's what, depending on your two preference, Starbucks a month, two Starbucks a month, or, yeah. or for, for if us, you have the Mocha Waka Chocka, you know, Grande Venti, or if you pig out at Greg's, that's one Greg's a month. I could easily spend spend nine pounds at Greg's. Well, and and like one of my things is is Backways helped me because. One of my drives failed and I was able to restore pictures of my niece there you go. through that backup. And like, mm. that was, those are images that like I'm looking at now and like, I could not have kept those. And yeah, that's why I always have a good backup strategy. Do you, do you remember that story about, it was a journalist at Wired and he had like a three character Twitter handle. Yes. What was it? Was it Nat or something like that? I can't remember the handle, but somebody really wanted, a hacker really wanted that handle. And basically went after it with all kinds of social engineering and not, not, it wasn't the purpose wasn't to delete all the data off his laptop, but a side effect of the process that this guy, that this hacker took to take control of the Twitter handle was, uh, wiping the victim's hard drive. Wow. And he literally lost years of 
personal photo. That was his only copy of years of photos of his family. And, you know, they, the, the, you can't even measure the value of that in pounds or dollars. No. And you would. Not at all. But I remember it clearly. It was a sad, sad story. And yeah. it's a really good story to read because it explains the path. Because I think this guy, the journalist actually got in touch with the hacker and said, I want you to explain how you did this. And in return, you know, I'm not going to come after you legally. Uh, because, and, and so it's a ex- very enlightening post on like how he, you know, went to some service provider and got, did a, pa- you know, password reset over the phone that he shouldn't have been able to do because he oh, yeah. got enough personal info to, you know, basically, um, what do they call it? Uh, steal his identity, masquerade as him. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's it's scary, fascinating. The article, it really is. So B two, so B two, as you've already hinted at, is cl- is object cloud object storage. Now, yeah. Before we go into a little bit about B two specifically, now I'm aware of, I, I'm aware of the challenge I'm about to set you. In a few minutes, can you give our listeners a bit of a the TLDR on what yeah. what object storage is. Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, the reference point really for the industry is Amazon S3, which was released in 2006. And really before that point, you know, we used what are called, uh, you know, POSIX file system semantics. So don't worry about what any of that means. Like, it's the way that your laptop, desktop, computer, server works with files in local storage. So the, an app says, Hey, uh, I want to, I want to write a file and it says to the operating system, create a file with this name uh, and location, you know, a path in the directory tree. And the, uh, operating system says, fine, here's a handle. So you can refer to this file later. And then your app says, okay, uh, I want to write some data. So here's that file handle and I don't know, hundred K of data, whatever. And this can go on. And one of the things that the app can do is what's called seek within that file. So it can kind of rewind Mm. or fast forward and say, I want to overwrite this bit uh, at the beginning. And now I want to overwrite this bit at the end. So if you think about when you record video, um, when you start recording the video and the app starts like saving it onto the disk, nobody has any idea how long that video is going to be. Yeah. And so you record the video and you press stop. And one thing that typically happens is that the app has reserved some space at the beginning of the file for metadata, like how long the video is, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And then what it does is it kind of like finishes writing the video data, rewinds, and then writes that bit of metadata at the beginning so that when you open it, you know, it's, it's, uh, the, t- you know, whatever tool you're using knows how much you know, how many minutes are there or whatever. And then, and then you, when the app's done, it closes the file. So it gives that handle to the operating system says, okay, I'm all done. And so that's like dealing with, uh, local files and it works great. You know, that's the way that we, we dealt with files for decades. Can I just quickly ask, just, just to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. Yeah. So when we talk about handle, a, a good example of that is the, the path in. So say, for example, in Windows, C colon backslash documents backslash movie dot, uh, WMV or in, or in Mac OS, you know, um, or Linux, you know, home, you, you that's what we're talking about when we need a, a handle. No, similar, but not quite. So 
say, say my, say I'm the app mm-hmm. and I want to open, you know, C colon, I don't know, backslash hello.txt. Let's make it easy. What I'm going to do is so the user, say I'm a text editor, the user's typed in or selected, you know, hello.txt. I say to the OS, Hey, I want to, I want to read and write hello.txt. And the OS basically just makes an entry in a table and says, we're going to be working with hello.txt and gives you back a number that's like the index of that entry. And so it's a, it's a, it's a very small piece of data, like basically like a number that I could, the, the OS gives to me as the app and then I can provide it and it, it can go back and forth and like quickly because it's very small. And there's more. So, and, and here's the critical thing. It's got to be more than the, uh, file name because the OS is maintaining state, namely where I am in the file. Cause when I read or write data, there's a, there's an implied location, which is where I left off last time. Got you. Okay. So, so under that file handle is, yeah, the, the path to the file, but also the location in the file where me, the app is writing. And there can be multiple apps. Like, so say it's a bunch of apps reading. There can be multiple apps looking at that same file, each with its own file handle, each with its own current location in the file. Okay. Now, so imagine that you are, uh, you know, you've put your banner image from your website in cloud object storage and you've got hundreds of thousands of people visiting your website. Their browser is, you know, downloading that uh, image. What I've just described absolutely does not scale to the internet because, you know, having a, <laughs> a global, uh, you know, file uh, handle table, uh, is just not going to fly. No. And so this is, this is the root of why cloud object storage is different and why we talk about objects. So instead of saying, you know, give me a handle and keep track of where I am in the file, please. You say, here's a, a file name and a bunch of data. And you've got to give the uh, entire contents of that object. Uh, you know, we call it an object instead of a file. Essentially all at once. You can stream it into the system. You know, you can, but you're basically sending it along uh, a series of HTTP connections. Logically, you're giving it a single chunk of data uh, we won't get into large files and so on but right now. but um, And then once you're done, it's immutable. So you can delete it. You can send it another chunk of data and say, hey, this has got the same key as that last object I gave you, effectively overwriting it. But you can't append to it. And you can't, like, overwrite the beginning or the middle. So those, that's, that. so when I said earlier, don't try and treat cloud object storage. You know, there are tools that do this, that kind of, you know, in Windows land, it kind of might be like H drive or something that is, you know, a bucket in cloud object storage. And it appears very familiar. But uh, yeah, when, when uh, whatever, app, when Word wants to, you know, overwrite a bit of a file, what's actually happening under the covers is you have to get all the old file, overwrite that locally, and write all the data back. And it's a very, very poor experience. Like if you don't understand that and, and know what's happening. Having said that, 
I can I can derail any conversation. There are there are there are excellent tools that actually do provide the illusion of local storage uh, based on you know based on cloud object storage, but they work very differently. They they work at the block level, so they split your file up into little chunks. And so the way that works is you can overwrite, but a chunk at a time. So it kind of simulates that local storage. But and and, and uh, like we, uh, I've worked with one called LucidLink, and it's a fabulous product. You know that if you get the top end service, uh, you can literally edit 4K video that's sitting in the in the cloud. Wow! And so you can edit files that are bigger than your local storage because you're basically just reading blocks into a local cache and it does read ahead. So you can literally scrub through files in Premiere Pro that, that you know, it's like magic, but you pay $80 per terabyte per month for the privilege. Yeah. It's wonderful, but, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's like, you know, it's like a, a Ferrari. You, 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 it's great. If you want to win a race on the track, but not so good for doing your weekly shopping. Is it fair to say Blaze B2 is very much at that price point for general file storage? I mean, the stuff that we can talk so much about use cases, mm. but would you say that's fair? It's general cloud it's, storage. Yeah, it's five, yeah, so $5 per terabyte per month. And what, the other thing you can't forget right now, we have, and most you know cloud providers have what's called egress fees or download fees. And it's a penny per gigabyte, which is still very cheap. You know, one of the lowest in the industry. It's free for upload. Yeah. It, and, and what, how you've got to think of it. It's not a product. It's not a consumer product in the way that Backblaze backup is. It's a service with an API for applications to integrate with. So we do have like a web, there's a web console. You can log in, you can open a bucket up. And you can do a bit of like dragging files in and like seeing how much you've got stored. But, you know, that's, that's, a, a, you know, a courtesy and nicety. It's really built for things like business backup tools. So there's a tool, there's many tools. One of, one of the most common is called Veeam. And that'll back up like your Windows server or VMs or whatever. Basically, it can plug into a whole range of different cloud object storage options and b2 is one of them and then uh so yeah so keeping archives and backups around either you know according to a cycle or indefinitely you know that you we are getting into use cases but only three so that's that's a big that's one of our biggest use cases i'd say probably our biggest right now is archive and backup because it's so obvious and it's a it's a that's an area where don't get me wrong, S3 and AWS are, you know, ground, you know, they, they've really pushed the industry forward. Fantastic pieces of work. But if you've got some back data you need to back up and you're not operating on it with all those other services that AWS provides, you're not really getting the value out of S3. It might as well be in Backblaze B2. And that's that's basically the calculus that our, our customers make and it's like for and also for um media assets so audio video images again big files there and there's not really that much special that aws does for you 
And uh, again, we, we, we partner with, we have some great partners in that space. I've personally worked, uh, with a media asset management tool called Iconic. So how that works is you can have a, like a bundle of images and uh, videos stored in your, you know, your bucket. So just to explain, the bucket is the, you have your account with whatever storage provider, and this is common across the industry. Uh, and then you have a bucket, which is like, a point of control that's got a name and you know you use it for a particular purpose and you might give like you know uh different apps permission to access that bucket and then you can have other buckets so if you were like you know your your server backups might be in one bucket and your video files would typically be in another bucket so it's a way of keeping things organized and within those buckets you can have as many objects slash files as you like so yeah, so this this um, media asset management is called. Will scan all the images and uh, videos in your bucket and give you a lovely browser based interface with a little thumbnail for each one, and they even make a lower resolution copy called a proxy of each video file. So you can do you can like go and drag the mouse across and see oh oh that's that clip you know that's what's in there, and you can tag them and it even lets you. Um, you know, if you're in a team collaborating, you can say, okay, I'm the director. I can go in on the web, you know, through this web interface on my laptop from the train, right? You know, it's that kind of level of, of, uh, uh, resolution. These proxies are good enough to kind of scan through and say, okay, I want you to use this clip. And this is the in point, you know, start at five seconds. And then this is the out point. You've got to end at 62.5 seconds. I'm going to put some annotation there to say, okay, this is the third clip in the series. And then, um, you know, your, your actual editors that can then come along and use Premiere Pro and grab that full resolution video and see those same markers to say, okay, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a tool for collaboration. But anyway, the, the, the upshot is, all of these industry tools, these off-the-shelf tools, they work with the 800-pound gorilla, Amazon S3. And uh, because Backblaze B2 has an S3-compatible API, you just configure them to talk to Backblaze instead of Amazon. And outside of that, the app works just the same. So it can be uh, reading and writing data into, you know, aside from when it sets that connection up, um, it doesn't know or care that it's talking to us instead of Amazon. That wire protocol is uh, identical. Which is really cool. And then uh, the, 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 just rounding it off, so I archive backup media entertainment. We have customers who build entire applications. So those first two cases, you're typically using off-the-shelf products and saying, hey, use this S3-like thing, but, you know, with this uh, key and endpoint. We've got customers who have built applications around the storage. So they're actually using those APIs. And, we, you know, we ha- when, we, when we launched B2 back in 2016, you know, back a bit had been around for nine years. We'd built this cloud uh, infrastructure and we said we can we can do this kind of cloud object service for for the business customer and it had its own api you know back then things weren't quite as settled in the market 
Um, and it had an API, which was easy to use, but different. And that's the key thing, you know, no matter whether it was easier or more difficult to use than Amazon's S3 API, it was different. So a few years after that, I think about uh, two or three years ago, we put an S3 compatible API in front of B2. And this unlocked the ability for, you know, off-the-shelf tools to work and then developers to use off-the-shelf SDKs and tools and code with those those SDKs that Amazon puts out that are very high quality and easy to use. Again, just change the endpoint and yeah. they work with B2. And so the customer I like to talk about, unfortunately, I can't name them yet, but they uh, sell home security cameras. And there are many customers that do this, so I'm, you know, I'm not giving you much of a clue. But the cameras are actually uploading video data directly to their Backblaze B2 bucket. It doesn't go through their data center or application whatsoever. And typically, you know, in these systems, you, you know, they'll retain your video for 30 days so you can review it, download it, whatever. All they've done is they like, there's a setting you can put to say, okay, the retention period for this bucket is 30 days. So we're responsible for that life cycle of the data from receiving it directly from the camera to deleting it when it ages out. And then their portal for their end users sits on top of that and just allows their end users to review the video. I heard a noise last night. Let me go re review the footage from 10 p.m. and I'll download that five minutes and share it on Nextdoor. Um, but, and, but the entire application is built around the cloud object storage. And obviously we're not unique in allowing people to do this, uh, you know, S3 kind of blazed the trail, but you know, we are unusual in our cost effectiveness, shall we say, in allowing you uh, to do this. Yeah. Which I, I think is a huge thing. So go on, Jay. Okay. Cause my uh, last job I was in charge of before I left working on the uh, backup solution for their servers. And we settled on somebody else. I forget why, but the costs were like way more than Backblaze B2. And I, and then I still was surprised that we would, that we didn't go with, 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 with B2. And it, cause I, I, cause I mean, your costs, especially for startups and, and, and any company, but especially for startups is, is incredible. Well, I know, I know we'll be kind of radically transparent here and say, you know, it's not like B2 is a clone of S3. They've got very similar, you know, semantics and so on. But, uh, you know, we've got a simpler permission model. You know, S3 allows you to define permissions down to the object level. We we, we uh, set it at the bucket level. So all objects inherit the permissions on their buckets. And you have two choices. You have private and public read. Uh, but for 80% of applications, that's all they'll ever need. And in fact, giving uh, developers more choices adds complexity and risk of accidentally exposing data, you know, having public objects in a private bucket and vice versa. It makes it hard to reason about who can see the data. So there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a few areas like that where we, we, you know, there are areas where, you know, apps can fail and we, we work with partners and developers to, uh, you know, figure out what's going wrong and say, just do it a slightly different way and it'll work. Uh, but yeah, yeah, in the interest of transparency, it's it's not the same, but it's it's roughly one fifth of the cost. Absolutely, and I like the simplicity because I remember one of the some of the some of the the 
um, data leaks we've had. And uh, I'll just say that my company I worked for actually was a, a victim of that. The data company they were using was using S3. And that data company actually exposed all of the uh, confidential data on an S3 cloud bucket. Oh, dear. So, yeah. So it, it, it's incredibly good to have that data locked down. Yeah. Ease of use can actually uh, – ease of use can be a security feature. And the other thing I, I, I often talk about, you know, people say – uh, you know, why, it, you know, how come it's so much cheaper? You know, there must be a catch. There must be a trick. Good question. And partly it's, well, it's, you know, we designed it. The design center was cost effectiveness and there is some like simplicity there where Amazon is much more flexible and complex. But when you open up the AWS console and you see those hundred services there, do you think they're all self-sufficient, you know, economically? Or do you think? S3, you know, the foundational service holding all the data might just be subsidizing some of those science experiments. And so we storage is all we do, you know, backup and the object storage. We have no, you know, we have no value added services. We're trying to sell you or anything. It's like you're not selling, you're not selling, um, you know, a database cloud service. You're not selling no a, uh, you know, a uh, PaaS, not PaaS, I'm sorry, you're not selling some sort of uh, active directory replacement in the cloud or DNS. No, no. And we have great partners that will, you know, we have uh, Cloudflare and Fastly uh, on and bunny.net on the, CDN side and Vulture and Equinix Metal on the compute side that we partner with. So you can build a comprehensive, you know, you can build a cloud application, soup to nuts. And we are, you know, those partners, we provide free egress. So, you know, that penny a gigabyte I was talking about. If you are serving data through Cloudflare or you're, you know, reading into an app on uh, Vulture, you pay zero. Because in many cases, we've actually got like peering uh, so <laughs> getting down into the weeds, we've basically got a network cable within our data center between our equipment and theirs. So it's not flowing over the public internet. So we're not having to pay carriers to ship the bits around. It's going into, into between, in, between two literal or physical switches. Precisely. So it's, it's not that we don't want you, you know, running, uh, you know, SQL query engines uh, and and data lakes and everything. We, we are delighted and people do. And we, you know, one of my jobs is to explain to people exactly how you do that. It's just, we're not, you know, that's not our thing. We are purely the storage and, uh, you know, everything we do and, you know, everything, everything we kind of have planned is in that storage. It's, you know, it's that that's that is what we do absolutely and you know what you've just touched on something really important um jay i think you were going to talk we haven't even spoken about nautilus yet this is going to be a bumper episode you may have to split it into two parts Uh, well we may have to split this across a couple of zip files that's it um (laughs) right oh please 500 uh 500 megabytes max or is it gigabytes i can't even remember Hey, at least you're not backing up across multiple floppy disks. Oh, I do. Sorry. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I derailed you yet again, yet again, James. It's all good. Jay, I think you were going to make a point about, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, a point you were going to make raise is about the cost of services like creative cloud storage, because that's designed as high performance storage for, uh, for high performance is maybe wrong. It's, very use case specific storage 
for your photos, for your Adobe Premiere video mm-hmm. that is very well integrated, maybe unfortunately too much so these days, mm. since Adobe seem to be disabling local save a lot. Yeah. And and and, and basically like like the UI interface, I, I experienced this with uh, even even Microsoft. They they would always encourage people to save to one to, to OneDrive and I had to explain in my last job, click this little button over here that always closes every time you close it. Then you can save locally because they were they would always be like, "Where's my file? Oh, it's saved to it's saved to OneDrive." And it's like, mm-hmm. which is magic, you know, when you're on a plane and you want to just like tweak around with something, and it's like, oh, god damn it, just just save locally. I mean, look, if you are fully internet connected, then saving to OneDrive through Office is great in so many cases. And you know, and we talk about civilians. I know that for a lot of civilian users, and I do like that term because we are nerdy, you know, we're in the ranks of the tech. For a lot of people, it, it, it's so simple. It's, I, you know, I, I, I tutor a 77-year-old retired solicitor in IT. I don't want to be stressing out about his backups. We are, of course, going to be looking at proper backups with Backblaze, of course. Other Backblaze back, back, backup providers are available, but not on this episode. Um, <clears throat> so... One of the things I wanted to talk about, and one of the things, you know, you talked about Nautilus. Well, let's talk quickly about, let's just be really honest, all of this data storage, all these hard drives, they consume power, they consume electricity. And we are, you know, whether or not people listening believe this or not, our opinion, at least this is mine and Jay's, uh, we are in the middle of a climate crisis. Yeah. Yes. Dude, I live in California. I mean, you know, wildfires... Because uh, the, the vegetation gets so dry, mm. uh, the wildfire season is getting longer every year. And that's, and that's, I'm sorry, that is, you know, that's, that's putting people's lives at risk. It's destroying people's mm. homes. It's uh, mm-hmm. everything. So, and unfortunately, the reality is data centers are, are a big, you know, contribution to our consumer. Yeah, yeah, big consumer yep. of that. And so a question I'm going to be blunt about is what are Backblaze doing to help not reverse, but help mitigate that. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, over the past, you know, 16 years that the, the cloud has effectively existed, and, of course, the cloud is basically someone else's computer. The, you know, there's been a lot of studies around comparing, you know, putting all these eggs in one basket with having them all distributed around and so on. So, you know, not, I'm not going to kind of retread much of that, but, you know, we currently have, I think it's five data centers right now uh, split between, you know, the, the western side of the US and uh, Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And we recently opened our most recent one was in a city called Stockton in California, which is about 60 miles east of San Francisco. And it's on the San Joaquin River. And and when we talk about our data centers, it's it's kind of useful to understand that we don't build and own the buildings. We own the computing hardware and uh, we set it up in, you know, our data center providers premises. So they provide the roof and the power outlets and the AC, uh, air conditioning, cooling, uh, security, physical security, all of that, but it's our hardware. So we talk about our data center and what we mean is the hardware and software that we have sitting in somebody else's building. And, that, and that's typical for pretty much everybody apart from the hyperscalers, you know, those giants that 
do actually break earth themselves. Now, we needed a facility that would hold, you know, up to another exabyte in storage. So, you know, I said earlier, we, we, we've got about 2.6 exabytes in raw storage right now. An exabyte is a thousand petabytes or a million terabytes. And so we looked around and this provider called Nautilus caught our eye and their facility in Stockton is a barge in the river. And when I say a barge, it's basically a big cuboid that is moored to, uh, I think, four or more poles. So it can, if you imagine, it's basically, it can float up and down with the level of the river, but it's fixed. It can float in the Z-axis, sorry, Z-axis, uh, but it's fixed in the X and Y axes because it can float up and down, kind of tethered to these poles. And these are the kind of heavy-duty poles that, uh, you know, that, 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 that are going to keep it there no matter what. This isn't your canal barge. This isn't a barge on the Leeds Liverpool Canal. This is, um. No, this isn't on the, no, this isn't on the Coventry Cut. There you go. So, uh, yeah. So you've got this cuboid that's floating in the water. And the thing that's the main thing that's really very cool about this is that is, it is cooled by the river water. Uh, basically the, uh, they have like, uh, an intake at the facility. So they take in uh, river water, it's ambient temperature, and then they have a heat exchanger. So they don't want their, they, they, you know, they filter the river water on its way in. They don't want that flowing around the actual data center. So they have a closed system with water that does flow around the data center. And there's a heat exchanger there. And then the river water exits downstream in a location that is safe for wildlife after it spends about 15 seconds in the data in the you know data center system and it exits about four degrees fahrenheit so two celsius give or take warmer than when it was uh brought in so it's discharged in a you know in a, a friendly location and within seconds it's basically the same temperature as the rest of the river i mean the amount of water is insignificant compared to the river flow and so this is not consuming power. You know, they obviously the, you know, the um, servers and networking requires power to stay on, but they're not consuming power to cool it. And that's the important thing. So, so this is, this is, and it, you know, it's, it's, uh, this whole system been inspected and approved by multiple agencies. You know, one of the reasons Nautilus did this first in California was that if you can get it approved in California, uh, you can get it you know, it'll work anywhere in the US. Uh, California has very yeah. stringent environmental uh, protections, you know, at the state level, much more so than, you know, the federal government. And then the other thing that's, that is that is very, very cool in its own right. And then like, you know, coming up along is, it's actually located in the port of Stockton, which is like a tier one port and, it's actually guarded by the Department of Homeland Security uh, because it is part of critical infrastructure. So it kind of piggybacks off that physical security. So you can't, you know, you have a hard time walking up the door of any data center, but you actually have, you know, the U.S. government preventing you get from getting getting to the door of uh, Nautilus. You know what's interesting about this is I'm thinking of, about like the future use cases because there are there are like so many places where they could 
create new new lakes. I mean, just like so many or new rivers. I mean, or use existing rivers. It's like my mind is just going through the uh, wild with ideas of where they could expand this project and add in mm-hmm. environmentally sound cooling and really get rid of a lot of the environmental impact of a lot of a lot of our data centers. I mean, I'm, I, this this excites me so much. Yeah, yeah, and and. I, I neglected when I did my potted bio earlier on. I spent a year in the wilderness at Huawei between Sun and Salesforce, uh, working with their cloud team. And, uh, one of the things that they, they were doing was building data centers in the, in the north of China, uh, where the ambient temperature was much cooler. Uh, you don't always have that luxury, you know, California, you have to go up in the mountains to get cold, but even like down in Stockton, which is it gets over, a uh, hundred Fahrenheit, so you know, well into the thirties Celsius, uncomfortably warm, shall we say, in the, in the summer. I mean, all you need is that temperature differential. That river water uh, is, you know, they, is cool enough that it can do the whole job. And we're talking, you know, several megawatt uh, data center here. It's not just a little. This isn't just this isn't just a little hutch. This is a proper no fully functional. Yeah. Fully connected data center that's holding, obviously, not just your your infrastructure. No, no, no. Much more than us. Yeah. And, yeah, there's a blog post. I, again, we are, you know, almost radically transparent. There's a there's a really interesting blog post that my colleague, uh, the, the Drive Stats King, Andy Klein, wrote on this so that you, you, we can put in the show notes. But you just Google Backblaze Nautilus and, uh, and it's all there. It is incredible. It really is. And... You know, it's the sort of thing that I think it's good to see because the reality is as we use more and more data, we are going to need more data centers uh, to yep. hold that infrastructure. You know, as you said, that place needs to expand because more people are hopefully going to use your services. Now, nobody nobody deletes anything. I mean, that's, that's the reality nowadays. <laughs> Hello. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And every so often, you kind of have to offload it to somewhere, you know, whether it's an external drive or a cloud service. But, like, the idea of actually hitting delete is, it feels weird. Yeah. I'm actually moving a lot of my data off of some of the services. I'm kind of consolidating my services I use. And right now, I'm, like, saying, James, I've got, like, five terabytes of data. What do I do with it? Yeah, it's, it's, you've got a lot of data and, and that's, that's not uncommon, you know, particularly if you are a photographer. Now, one, one thing I want to say a little bit about going back to B2 is correct me if I'm wrong here, but the first 10 gigabit, gigabits, gigabytes, gigabytes. Of, of data. Eight times as much. Eight times as much. There you go. Is, is, is effectively. It's free forever. And, and the really nice thing for, especially for folks like developers who want to kick the tires, try out an app with it, you can create an account with just an email address. So we don't even need a credit card to get at that first 10 gig. And, you know, we're not like other services where we'll take your credit card. And if you happen to stray beyond that free allowance, we'll start charging it. We just cap it at 10 gig. And, uh, until you do decide, Hey, yeah, I want to go further with this. I'll, you know, input my credit card details and, uh, you know, we're off to the races. And I think we ask for, I think we ask for, for a bit more, uh, I think we ask for a, a phone number or, or maybe an email confirmation 
if you actually want to put data publicly on the internet. And that's like a... That, yes, that's right. Yeah, that's just to raise the bar a little bit for people that want to, you know, try and serve malware or... Right, it puts that barrier to entry. And it's good to... So, yeah. Uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about that tank because the use... I'll tell you, I'll be very... We want to be transparent in what we do here at Crosswires. Yeah. So one of the challenges we face is that Sometimes, like we will do for yourself, we want to send a preview of an edit. Yep. So that our, you know, your just for transparency, we offer this to every guest. Very few guests actually take us up on it, but you know, when we're dealing with bigger profile companies, they, they may do. And one of the challenges, iCloud Drive sharing sucks. Mm-hmm. because we, me and Jay have everything shared between us so that we can both work on show notes, both work on edits. You know, if Jay's mm. editing for me, uh, maybe I'm, you know, doing something and I needed to edit an episode, she can get to all the raw files. But if you've got a shared folder and you want to share something out within that folder on iCloud, you cannot do it. You cannot generate a second link. So, Ooh. yeah, it kind of sucks. So what we've done is used a tool that comes with setup called DropShare. Mm-hmm. We connect it back to our B2 account. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we just upload stuff there. We get then a link generated mm-hmm. through B2. We send yep. that out and yep. it works well. What we've also got is for our new website, which is uh, maybe by the time this comes out, the new website will be live. We obviously want to make sure we've got WordPress backups and whole site content backups. Mm. Well, the way we do that <laughs> is so cool. We use a plugin called Back to BP Up which has an S3 connector. And as Pat mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. Backblaze B2 is S3 compatible. So we just, as he said, change the endpoint, get it all working. Yep. We back up there. And then my true NAS instance, which is sat up there at the moment on a, on a shelf mm-hmm. every day, that has a that has native B2. Um, so it's not going through the S3 layer as such. It's, you know, oh, yeah, here, here we go. We support B2 natively, putting your creds, Mm-hmm. And it then pulls it down into a storage pool, which is kept, you know, further. But beyond that, I do things like, you know, we might, you know, we back up a lot of other stuff into that 10. We have, we, we effectively use our 10 gig free as transitory storage to move into mm. on site backup. And then down the road, as we have more, you know, more income from the podcast, we will. You know, we will do more backups. Eventually, you know, we will back up all of our archives. You're going to cross that 10 gig barrier at some point in the future. We will. The nice thing is we have it set so that it's, um, at the moment, we have it set so that there's only so much data retention sure. through those tools. But yeah, we will cross that barrier. Understood. And at a yeah. price point, it makes it very cost effective. Yeah, right. You know, hey, one thing I'd say, Squadcast, if, if anyone at Squadcast is listening right now, I would love to see a way to, without using Zapier, a way to, because you had Dropbox integration, how about one for B2, folks? Let's have a, a way to send recordings yep. straight from Squadcast into B2, please. And that, that, and yeah, and, that, and that's the great thing is that you can implement it for uh, S3, you know, the, the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and Backblaze comes along for free as well as, you know. The reality is that the S3 APIs become the de facto standard for cloud object storage, IBM cloud supports it. Um, I think Google does, but Azure doesn't. DigitalOcean do. Exactly, exactly. So for, uh, you know, vendors like Squadcast, it's almost a no brainer. You know, you get, you get, and, and, 
you know, this model that we see, you know, bring your own. There's two ways it could work, right? Because you can basically, uh, you know, as a independent company like Squad- Squadcast, they can say, bring your own uh, credentials for your storage and we'll just, you know, put it there. Uh, but we have other customers who essentially uh, white label the storage. They resell it. So, you know, our customer will pay us uh, and we've got like, they might do pay as you go. We have another, so pay as you go is wonderful for, uh, you, you, with B2, you're really out of the realm of civilians into like what we call prosumers, right? Professionals who are consumers, you know, photographers, um, uh, videographers, that kind of thing. But, but, but pay as you go is great because it's like what you're paying is in lockstep with what you're using. Some customers, and particularly those who are like reselling storage as part of their offering, want like that variable monthly cost gives their accountants a heart attack. Yeah. And they would rather say, rather than what we call um, consumption based pricing, they like capacity based pricing. They want to say how much. Yeah. Exactly. So we can say, um, okay, this is the deal for 20 terabytes of capacity. And you ha- you pay us like monthly or yearly. That's what you have. And, you know, there we'll say, you know, there's the, the, like bundling there that will say, uh, one thing is we will move your existing data from wherever it is. So whether it's in another cloud, on tape, on a, a bunch of USB drives in a closet, we'll migrate that into B2 free of charge. We only ask that you keep it with us for a year, which you're going to do because it's a great deal. And uh, you also get egress up to the amount of data you're storing every month. So you can download your entire data set or your entire, not the amount of store, the amount you're paying for every month. So so if you're, say, if you've got like Joe's uh, amazing photo site and you want to make it like a... a shrink wrapped experience for your customers so they just pay joe or maybe you have advertising so they don't pay anything you know you, know, you basically you can like resell uh backblaze b2 and you know have a very predictable costs but anyway yeah so so yeah there's there's a like, yeah there's a as i very accurately stated I can, t- you know, just give me an opportunity. I will talk your ears off. I can talk for England. No, actually, I'd have to talk for Scotland because my parents are Scottish. Oh, there you go. But it, it is a fascinating world. Now, looping back a little bit, so because we obviously talked a lot about BT, but I just want to top off the Backblaze backup discussion quickly to say, you know, obviously about £7 a month, it's great value. Now, one question just to make sure we're covering all the bases. Mac, Windows, no Linux support yet, if I remember correctly? No li- Linux support yet and probably never. Right. Because again, it's a consumer it's a consumer product. Exactly. It wasn't you know, it wasn't really designed for you and me. It was designed for my mum who's uh coming up on 84 but a very, you know, technologically adept, uh, you know, on the, on the laptop all the time. Um, but just wants something that she can set and forget. Linux, you know, 
Oh, I, I used to run Linux on a laptop. I was at Sun Microsystems when Microsoft was Satan in, in their eyes. And uh, you had to have a very good reason to have Windows on your laptop. I was running Suzy Linux. So the thing with Linux is just the variation between distributions, kernel versions. Every time I upgraded, something would stop working, whether it was the sound or video would go to pot. You know, it's just, it's hard to sell a, a consumer product that, that with ease of use as its design center into the Linux market. And, and, you know, and again, we're very transparent about this economically. You know, those folk, you know, Linux users do tend to have a lot more data. And, and the, but the tooling is there with, uh, you know, things like Arclone makes it trivially easy to sync you know, a file tree into B2 and set encryption and all those bells and whistles for that, that power user. And let's face it, if you've got 1.4 terabytes or less, it's actually cheaper than the uh, backup product. Oh, yes, you're right. Good point. Now, you know, of course, if you are, you know, if you are a Linux user and you are a power user, you're going to use, you, uh, as Pat said, you're going to have those tool sets. I love the fact that so many of the NAS manufacturers and platforms have native BT. Correct me if I'm wrong, I think Synology, even, yes. even though Synology offer their own object storage yep. through, I think they call it C2, just to be, you know. S oh, I know why they call Cloudflare it. Cloudflare has R2. That's right. Who's yep. got D2? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. Give it time. Give it, Give time. it time. Yeah. I, I do know that 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 um that it, the Amazon has has a competitor product called C three PO. <sighs> okay, that was a very bad. One. That, that's for mail product. Uh, how's how's George Lucas with that? Uh, you know, yeah. Like, <laughs> well, it, I wonder it, what's going on there. Well, it's none of his business anymore, really. Is it? It's not, oh, that's true. It's, it's Disney, Disney, even worse. Yeah, oh. don't don't mess with the mouse. <laughs> you'll get the mouse. You'll get the Disney lawyers. I once had a Disney lawyer come after me for on the web years ago. That's a story for another time. I, I do right. love the fact that, just as a complete aside, that old episodes of The Simpsons have lots of jokes about Disney lawyers. And yes. they are now Disney-owned. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, Pat, it, has, it really has been fascinating. Thank you so much for your insights. And people, head over to batblaze.com because all their products are just nicely laid out there. Mm -hmm. My biggest encouragement, if you are not, backing up off-site right now and you want to make sure your data is safe yes jay i am looking at you <laughs> spend if you can justify it, i know we're in a cost of living crisis but if you can justify it and i think honestly seven pounds or dollars a month is worth it especially if you've got those family memories and uh, pat one thing to just to say for apple users you play nice with icloud photo library because it is just at its core a file store it is just a file yeah. it can just be backed up it, it, it isn't excluded it's it, it's just a bunch of files that are backed up right yep and those yeah exactly and those it is very at its root it is very very simple it's just watching the file system for changes and uploading like new files and there's you know there's things to make it efficient like deduplicate deduplication Deduplication? No. Um, Deduplication, yeah. De yeah, yeah. And, and like I said, you know, there are there are a bunch of file types, like, you know, sparse bundle. You know, if you're a complete Mac head, you'll know what that is. They're excluded by default because they don't tend to be the kind of files that 
folks want a backup, but you can just go in there and delete the entire exclusion list and and back up everything. You know, the only things we we stay away from are apps and the OS because it's it's seriously just a waste of time having you know a hundred thousand copies of Mac OS Ventura sitting in our uh, data center. And the reality is that's what time machines for. That's what your local backups. That's what your carbon copy cloner backups of your systems are for right and if you get a new laptop you know your laptop gets stolen you know tragedy or whatever you've got an os yeah i mean your your machine's like you unusable without it and i think the thing is these days with you know again if we look at the mac and look at do you know what i think the biggest thing now is because with very few exceptions software is all online mm. you don't have that massive pain of a reinstall it's nowhere yeah. near as it painful as it used to be having to put, you know, put your. I can't remember the last time I I plugged into the the disk spinner into my laptop for a software installation. I, I yeah, I I think my son's got it at college. <laughs> I remember installing Into the Matrix on it was it was on like four like four or five CDs. Oh yes, and that installer had a glitch. If you did not time it correctly on the third disc to go to the fourth <laughs> disc, installer would, would stop. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, it's like the old stories of, you know, installing Windows 95 via floppies, and that one floppy at the end yeah. is bad. The only reason I've got an optical drive connected to my machine at the moment is, and this, this is going to sound very vintage, for DVD ripping, because we got the complete Malcolm and DVDs, Riddle. granddad? Yeah, that's right, DVDs. <laughs> DVDs. Uh, don't, don't talk to me about those Blu-rays. What? Oh, aye. That's a walk uphill both ways to the rental shop. Aye. When we grabbed my my late granddad came into the opti- optical video, you know, like the digital video mark thing very late in his life. And we got him a, you know, we originally had a DVD player and he managed to break that. Um, don't know how we did it. Um, I think he might have tried to use it as a coffee cup holder. Uh, joke. Joke. <laughs> But we then got him a Blu-ray player, but he couldn't understand the terminology, so he calls them. B- he called them BDVs. BDVs. Okay, love it. So anyway, Pat, thank you so much for your time. If people want to find you, obviously a bit more about Batblaze, and maybe for some strange reason, follow you on social media. Where can they do so? Mm. Okay, so uh, yeah, Batblaze is at backblaze.com and Backblaze on uh, the Twitters and. Facebook and LinkedIn, and I think we uh, we we have a, a subreddit. Um, and then I am uh, universally metadaddy. That's M E T A D A D D Y. I needed a, an aim handle back in about two thousand two, and and I uh, I was product. The, this was during my four year sentence in product management. Uh, I was managing a product called Meta Directory. Uh, the the least said about that, the better. Um, and I just, we just had our first child. So meta daddy instead of meta directory. Um, and it's like metadata as well. Meta daddy. Has Mark Zuckerberg come after you for that yet? I had it first, dude. I had this like 20 years ago. So yeah, uh, almost, almost universally. If you Google meta daddy, it's me, but certainly on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and I am a social creature. Uh, you can ask me questions, so on Stack Overflow. But beware that if you do go down the Google rabbit hole of MetaDaddies, there are other people out there with, shall we say, interesting hobbies. 
I'll leave it at that. <laughs> right. That are oh, not me. No. Okay. And right. Now, Pat, I'm I'm wondering what some of your aim status, way statuses were. Like, like some of mine were like, like, like um, song lyrics. I remember when I was on AIM. Oh, AIM, AIM. It's usually, it was usually making a cup of tea. Nice. Okay. I like that. It's very British. Brewing up. Because uh, AIM, AIM was actually... Oh, I had oh, for the young'uns out there, we're talking about AOL Instant Messenger. messenger. Which, and yeah. for even younger... And for, for slightly less young ones, AOL is America Online. Yes. <laughs> yes. It was, But it was hugely popular here in the UK. A- AIM was really popular here for some reason. Right. I, I, just, I just I just heard the uh, door open now, so some of us just... Uh, 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 okay, uh, all right. On that bombshell, thank you, oh, yeah. Pat, so much for your time. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Cross Wires. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. So please drop us a note over to podcast at crosswires.net. You can also drop us a comment on the post, or if you're a good pod user, why not start a discussion there too? You can find us on Mastodon at crosswires at masthead.social. And if a bird site still somehow miraculously here, you can follow us there as well at crosswiresmg. And of course, you can find the show in all the good podcast apps and all the really bad ones too. If you'd like to check out more of our content, head on over to crosswires.net slash YouTube for all our videos. And keep an eye on our Twitch channel at crosswires.net slash live for our upcoming streams. If you like what we heard, please do drop a review in your podcast directory of choice. It really does help spread the word about the show. And of course, if you can spare even the smallest amount of financial support, we'd be incredibly grateful. You can support us at ko-fi.com slash crosswires. That is ko-fi.com slash crosswires. Until next time, thanks for listening. 